This is the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. I'm Jeff Sharon, your host. This is show number four. We're recording this on Thursday, August the 25th, 2016. And we got a great show for you today. We're doing our last uh, Fall Olympic Sports Preview interview with head men's soccer coach Brian Cunningham. He will be joining us to talk UCF men's soccer in 2016. Uh, Their season actually starts this weekend. They're on the road. They won't be um, starting at home until mid-September, but we wanted to get that in before they started with their season opener out in Phoenix against Grand Canyon University. Also, later on, we'll have uh, Eric Lopez on to talk a little bit about what his expectations are for women's and men's soccer and volleyball in the fall this year, as well as to talk about uh, a couple of other things that made some news uh, in UCF land over the last uh, week or so. But first, let's go ahead and remind you that uh, you can follow us on Twitter. UCF underscore Banneret is the Twitter handle. You can also hit us up on Facebook at Black and Gold Banneret. You can also subscribe to our email uh, list by going to blackandgoldbanneret.com. Don't forget, you can also download this podcast on iTunes uh, and also Google Play. And I'm so close to getting this thing on Stitcher, it's not even funny now. So bear that in mind going forward uh, as we uh, roll on here. We're first uh, first four shows in the in the bag here. So, all right, let's go ahead and get started. We're going to start with talking about UCF men's soccer in uh, 2016. Last year, the Knights uh, finished 7, 8, and 2 overall, uh, 3, 4, and 1 in the league. Uh, very good home record, 6, and 3, but we're only 1, 5, and 2 on the road, uh, UCF had a couple of key wins coming down the down to the final weekend against Memphis and Cincinnati, but then lost to Tulsa in the American Athletic Conference quarterfinals in a real heartbreaker that ended the season uh, out at Tulsa. The game went to extra time, tied at two, and then the Knights lost four two in PKs, and Tulsa uh, eventually um, Tulsa was able to move on. Uh, they would eventually win the conference championship, the number four seed, uh, Tulsa Golden Hurricane, defeating uh, UConn on PKs 4-3 to three in a very competitive uh, conference the American is in uh, men's soccer in particular. So UCF was fifth in the conference last year. Heading into this year, the big story is who's going to replace Haji Berry, who was so good for UCF last year, led this team in goals with uh, 11 uh, also tallied three assists, um, got drafted in the MLS, uh, and is currently playing for the uh, Orlando City Soccer Club. So he's not all that far from UCF, but uh, so close yet so far, right? So he's not with UCF anymore. Uh, Matias Puzolo is going to be back, though. Uh, he scored six goals and tallied eight assists for second on the team last year. Uh, and he'll be asked to carry uh, a much larger share of the scoring load uh, this year. As far as everybody else on the team, um, that's 15 of UCF's uh, 24 total, uh, excuse me, 26 total goals. So who's going to pick up the slack? That's going to be a big thing for UCF to uh, have to negotiate here in the uh, American this year. The schedule filled with a lot of in-state teams. When you look at who UCF has to play, obviously they've got their two exhibitions in the bag right now, but they uh, start the home schedule on September the 14th against Florida Gulf Coast, which is a very good team out of the A-Sun, as well as Jacksonville and North Florida uh, at home. And then they play South Florida to start the conference season on September 24th. That's a Saturday. Uh, so it's a pretty tough schedule once UCF gets things going. They've got also Northwestern coming to town out of the Big Ten uh, on October the 5th. They go have to go down to FIU and play Florida Atlantic as well at a conference. And then, of course, the usual suspects, Cincinnati at home, UConn at home. Those are going to be some tough 
uh, games SMU at home in 2016. Brian Cunningham, the head coach in his 10th year at UCF, has put seven players in MLS. He's been to the NCAA twice, and he's looking to get back once again. So we'll see how UCF does in 2016. So without further ado, here's our interview with UCF head men's soccer coach, Brian Cunningham. All right, we're here with head coach Brian Cunningham of the UCF men's soccer program. Brian, you're in your 10th year now already? Yeah, it, uh, it certainly has gone by fast and had a lot of well wishes from former players. And, and uh, you know, just as we embark on this journey, it's always fun to look back at the groups we've had come through and, and obviously our successes. But certainly now looking forward to hopefully another great year with this group. Well, congratulations on a decade at UCF. It's hard to stay 10 years in one place uh, in any sport, in particular men's soccer, with the growth that it has. And and we've been lucky to have you at UCF. Two NCAA tournaments, seven MLS draftees, including one from last year, Haji Berry, who was the uh, Knights' leading scorer last year, 11 goals. Uh, that was second best in the American Athletic Conference. Um, he's gone, but not too far away. He's over in Orlando City right now. Um, Matias Puzolo's back. He's got he had six goals, second on the team last year. But coach, when you look back at uh, 2015, 15 of your 26 goals scored were from those two guys combined. So uh, Matias has got to step up, and then who else has got to step up with him this year on the offense? Yeah, I mean, we we brought in a very good group of uh, freshmen who I think can certainly help. And we have um, Gorka Parabay, who's who's another Orlando City kid, who um, who I think you know after the spring he had is, is due to have a good season with us. But you know, Jesus Colombo out of Jacksonville, and and we brought in another boy, Richard Amon from Ghana. I think he'll certainly provide um, some punching attack. And then we we found a, a diamond in the rough, which I'd like to do a kid out of Georgia, uh, Cal Jennings, who. Who I think is going to be real special. It's, it's it's one of those kids you find, and he's just a natural goal scorer. And uh, so we're looking, you know, from those guys just to, you know, really kind of balance our attack and, and trying to get goals from from a variety of different situations in a, ri- a variety of different ways. On the back end, you got Brendan Rennie back in goal. Uh, he got some reps last year in Zach Biggs's place. Uh, how has he been going? How, how has it looked for him this off season? How much has he been working on improving his status uh, in front of your goal? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what, we, we, we've been blessed here at UCF, and in my career period, we've, I've always had good goalkeepers, and, and we're, we're no slouch in that department right now. We've got three goalkeepers who I think could all start for us. Um, all three come from great backgrounds. Brendan being one of those, obviously, playing for us last year. Um, had some time with the Chicago Fire this summer, training up with Sean Johnson. Um, our, our, our incoming player, Matt Rosenberg, was up at Orlando City training while he was taking summer classes. Alex Shields from Jacksonville was with the Jacksonville Armada training over the summer. So we've got three really good goalkeepers, and uh, it's keeping me up at night trying to decide who's going to get the starting nod. Um, they've all played in preseason. They've all done really well. And, uh, you know, similar to like a college you know, football coach um, deciding on a starting quarterback, you know, it's, it's going to be a pretty difficult decision because I think all of them are definitely worthy of it. But ultimately we'll make a decision on which one's the best fit, you know, for Friday night. Tell me a little bit more. I want to follow up on something. Tell me a little bit more about how it works in the summer with college soccer players training with professional teams. Because you don't hear about that, for example, in football. You know, you're not going to see, um, you know, like like Blake Bortles didn't, you know, work out with the Jacksonville Jaguars for uh, a summer before he before he came back to UCF. So how does that work? And and what sort of benefits do you as the college coaches gain from that? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, we, we've been blessed to send, you know, obviously kids to the MLS and, and on all over the world, you know, frankly, playing professional soccer. But but the big thing is obviously having relationships with those um, MLS programs and, and speaking to them well in advance and, and just kind of seeing, you know, what their wants and needs might be. And if, you know, if we can get a kid out there to train for a week, obviously we, we want to do it or train for two weeks. Um, you know, Romario Williams was able to go play with the Seattle Sounders or train with the Seattle Sounders. He trained um, with a couple other teams that summer as well, um, including Orlando City. Um, but, you know, it's just a, it's a huge value to those players to be able to do that. Um, obviously, via NCA rules, it's legal because they're not receiving anything. They're just, they're just in a training capacity. So they can't play in matches or anything like that, but they certainly get exposed to you know, that, that next step up, that the, the, the professionalism that those kids kind of exhibit at, at that next level and, and obviously what they have to offer in terms of their discipline and how they go about their day, um, you know, minus um, having to go to class every day. Tell me, uh, when we take a look at the uh, roster now, you got a, you got a mix of international kids and then Florida kids, plus two from Georgia and one from uh, my original home state in New Jersey. So you bring back uh, 12 returners, six of them starters, but you got 11 of those newcomers. So is this kind of like a youth movement year for you, or are you expecting big things from those returning kids too? Um, a, a little bit of both. I mean, it's, it's tough. You know, we've done a really good job recruiting here. And sometimes you kick yourself because you recruit good players, and and obviously they have chances to leave early to go pro. And and unfortunately, we we've, we've had a lot of kids that obviously it hurts our program, but obviously it benefits the student to to go if he has a chance to go play pro. We don't have any rules that restrict them from leaving after their first year, second year, or third year. You know, so if it's a good situation, obviously you know you know we're not we're not going to stand in the way of, of of a dream trying to be fulfilled. Um, so. You know, it seems like every year we have a younger group that comes in, but, you know, they're talented. And these kids now are exposed to soccer in ways that I wasn't exposed to and, and kids five years ago weren't exposed to. So I think the level has gotten better in this country and obviously abroad. So when these kids come in, it's almost like I don't view them as freshmen because, you know, obviously we have a couple of transfers. Some of the international kids come from big-time places that have been exposed to soccer at a pretty high level. So the transition is usually pretty seamless. Tell me about your midfield and your defense. You know, you lose Mason Miller, uh, who's who's graduated now. Who fills that void that he that he leaves in the middle there, uh, trying to trying to get things going in the middle of the field? Well, the good thing for us is that the core group from last year that started, you know, probably about ninety percent of the games, um, they're back, and, um, and and thank goodness that's kind of up through the middle of the field. If, if we decide to go with Brendan, obviously he started last year. Um, bringing back our two center backs um, and another center back who, who played some games towards the end of the season last year. Uh, we brought in a kid mid-year from Sweden who um, certainly got to play center back and holding mid for us in Antal Delaware. And then, of course, we have Walker, Dawkins back. Matias will play in that um, position as well. And then we brought in a, a, a transfer, Johnny Dean, who I think can do it, and another transfer, and Diego Bacalar, who I think can play in that midfield and really kind of anchor us, and at least in that little nucleus um, of players, you, you have a multitude of um, experience, but also even though they're, they're young and they might be just sophomores and juniors, um, they've played a lot of games for us in the last um, one to three years. We're talking with Brian Cunningham, the head coach of UCF Men's Soccer. Coach, I wanted to chat a little bit about the schedule, too, and I love what you do with the schedule because – 
the American is a pretty tough uh, men's soccer conference. You got uh, two teams ranked in the top 25, two more receiving votes in the polls. SMU, USF are ranked, Tulsa and UConn receiving votes. But you also uh, bring in uh, and go to a number of Florida schools. You got seven Florida schools on the schedule, including USF, who obviously you have to play because they're in conference. But um, when you schedule the those in-state matches, are they is that a product of, you know, I want to play as many of these teams in state because of the talent that we have with these other schools? Um, or, uh, or, or is it a matter of travel convenience for everybody involved, or is it maybe a little bit of both? Well, it, it's a little bit of everything. Obviously, there's some very good teams here in Florida that you know we're, we're fortunate to, to have you know within driving distance and striking distance, if you will, so it's nice to do home-and-homes with them. And with the, with the new league and the American, I mean, we obviously have our fair share of flights, um, and obviously we're, we're not chartering um, to those locations. So we try and minimize our flights as much as possible for our non-conference games because towards the end of the season, it really does wear on the players. So if we can play some teams, and, and, and again, we're fortunate to have those teams here in Florida that play in good leagues and, and have done well traditionally, um, we want to play them. And, and our goal is always to win the state of Florida. Um, and it's you know it's one of our, our team goals when we, when we kind of look at the season as a whole is not only to win at home, but also to win Florida. Um, and then, you know, going kind of branch out and playing a good non-conference schedule on the road, that certainly prepares us for, for the conference foes. I think when I look at, I think, seven or eight teams from last year when the NCAA tournament in total, I think we have seven or eight teams in different polls ranked this year on our schedule. So it'll be a good test, and, and it certainly doesn't start out easy with three games on the road. Um, but with this group, I, I feel like we'll, they'll be pretty resilient and, and ready for the challenge. Let's talk about soccer in Central Florida, which you and your program are really at the epicenter of right now. We've seen, I mean, the growth in, of the sport in this region is is no secret anymore. In fact, I would even say that the honeymoon period is over now that we're in the second season of Orlando City, uh, and <laughs> they've already gone. They've already gone to their second coach in franchise in MLS mode franchise history. Um, but when you look at the game. Uh, from the 30,000-foot perspective in this area. What do you think is going to be the next step for the development of the sport in the Orlando and greater Central Florida region? I mean, the big thing, I think, is you know, you know keeping the unity that we have right now in terms of um, you know, with our relationship with Orlando City is amazing. That you know starts with Phil Rollins at the top. I've, I've had a positive relationship with him since his arrival here. Um, and even through the coaching change there at Orlando City, you know, I feel confident that, you know, those those guys understand that they're welcome here anytime, and, and they've been very welcoming to us there. But but the, the big thing is, obviously, with the completion of their stadium, um, hopefully continue to bring international matches here and keep exposing this region to, to great soccer. And, you know, UCF, um, you know, we were fortunate to, to be able to host the Florida Cup here in January. I think that's something that's going to continue to grow. So from a big perspective, you know, obviously part of growing the game is, is getting fans out to matches and, and not just watching on TV, but going out to the matches, matches having a positive experience at, at those matches, um, you know, whether it's with our Night's Watch group or with its Orlando City supporters group, the Ruckus and the Iron Firm. It's just going out there and just having a good time and, and being a part of a really fun atmosphere. And I think this is going to continue to blossom here over the next, you know, five to ten years. Tell me more about the Florida Cup, because it was a big announcement that happened, and uh, this is a big event for UCF, the Florida Cup. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've visited with them before. Ricardo Villar is a really good friend of mine, 
Um, and I believe it was back, it must have been in maybe May, a meeting that I had uh, with um, Danny and Patrick Ransville, and they're obviously looking for other, other ways to, to grow our brand. Um, and they asked me to reach out to, to Ricardo because we had spoken before about trying to bring the Florida Cup here. It didn't work out, you know, with the past administration and kind of some, some, some different, you know, venues that they wanted to try. Um, and Ricardo was completely on board. And obviously, you know, Danny, with the help of the Board of Trustees and Dr. Head, you know, saw it as a, as a great partnership. And, and I think it's going to be amazing. I mean, they've got some big-time teams coming here. Um, and our facilities are obviously world-class, so we feel like, the fit was perfect. UCF is a, is a global university, and uh, what what better spectrum than soccer, which is the global sport? All right, let's go to speed round with Brian Cunningham, the uh, men's soccer head coach at UCF. So uh, we're going to start the clock, and this is going to be fun, Coach. You ready? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Athlete you loved the most when you were growing up? Uh, <laughs> Michael Jordan. All right. Todd Dagenet said the same thing. Athlete you sports hated the most growing up? Troy Aikman. Oh, wow. He okay. Beat my e- well, he always beat my Eagles, so. That's right. You're a Philadelphia guy. That's right. Uh, favorite coach when you were growing up? Uh, definitely Bill Parcells. You know, he's my, he was mine, too, because I was a Giants fan. Um, or I still am a Giants fan and, back, and started following football when he was there. So, uh, Favorite meal? Pizza. After a long day of work, you cut. Co- oh wait, 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 wait! We have to tell that story from the one time when I was back uh, when when we went up to Stetson uh, when I was uh, at videography when I was doing videography for UCF. What was your favorite uh, pizza that you ordered? Yeah, the, so so my my coaches know that there's really no way for them to lose their job any short of doing something really foolish. But one way they can lose their job is if there's not a pepperoni and bacon pizza. Um, they're waiting for me um, at the end of the match. Pepperoni and bacon pizza. Mark that down, everybody. Pepperoni and bacon, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need to send that along to the Night Watch. All right. Um, My doctor doesn't like that, but... <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, but you get your workout in, so it's okay. All right, so after a long day of work, you come home, you open the fridge, and you pour yourself a nice glass of what? Water. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I drink so much water, I feel... <laughs> I always feel dehydrated because obviously we're outside and we're in Florida, so I'm sorry to disappoint people, but I drink more water than you can probably imagine. Favorite musical... Cold cold filter water is my favorite. (laughs) Favorite musical artist or band? Neil Diamond. Favorite actor or actress? I would say Will Ferrell. TV channel that's on all the time when you're in the office? Fox Soccer. TV channel that's on all the time at home? CBS Seinfeld. Favorite favorite place to be in Orlando that is not your house or the office? Um, I, I would say Orlando City Soccer Games. Uh, best player you've ever coached against? Probably Ashley McGinnis from Tulsa. Best coach you've ever coached against? Kevin Grimes from Cal. Best team you've ever seen in any sport? Barcelona 2012, I guess it would have been. They were amazing, weren't they? Yeah, I think that was the 2012-13 team, yeah. Most famous person you've ever had a one-on-one conversation with? Well, it was very impactful, Stuart Scott. If it wasn't for soccer, you would be doing what with your professional life? Golf. <laughs> Todd Dagenet said the same thing. He said, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be playing golf all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, place you're going to buy your retirement home in? 
a lake house. You're on a deserted island. What movie is playing on repeat on the only TV on the island? The Black Stallion. Uh, favorite pro team in any sport? My beloved Eagles. Favorite sports moment that you did not participate in? Well, Michael Jordan is one of my favorite athletes, so his, his game-winning shot against the Utah Jazz um, to, to win the NBA championship. 1998. That was 18 years ago. I, I can I can remember I can remember sitting in my living room watching that because I was a big Jordan fan and a Bulls fan growing up too. And um, what a, what a it's it's funny how we look back on that and we're like Jordan's career really ended there, even though he came back and played for a little bit with the Wizards, right? Yeah, I almost <laughs> don't even count that. <laughs> if you could change one on-field rule right now in NCAA soccer, what would it be? The substitution policy. What about it would you change? No re-entry. Uh, if you could change one off-field rule in NCAA men's soccer, what would it be? Well, it's what we're fighting for, and hopefully the message can go out that we're trying to switch to the academic year model, which would have us playing over the fall and spring. Um, and that would that would kind of change the direction of college soccer in this country for, for, the, for a benefit, and I think it would be massive. So, okay, so how would that work? When would the season start and when would it end? Would it be like a winter sport? No, it would be a fall and spring sport. So we would play approximately from like the middle of September to the middle of November, playing just one game a week over 10 weeks. Mm -hmm. And we'd go into a winter break, have another true kind of preseason to get your team ready in the spring, and then play another 10-week schedule or eight-week schedule, I can't remember how it works out, nine-week schedule from, you know, around the, the kind of the first week in March till the end of April. That's interesting. Uh, That's really interesting. I, 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 that, that, you're right. That would do a lot for college soccer in particular because when, when I talked with Tiffany um, Roberts-Hadek about it, she said the one thing that I would change is that our season's too short. Yeah, and that's, that's our problem. We, you're, you know, science tells us that we're playing too many games in a short amount of time and it's not good for student-athlete welfare. Yeah. Um, and, we're, and it's tough for teams to tell them to come in a month earlier than we're doing to do a proper preseason or to extend our season in the fall. Um, so one of the better solutions is to bring the students in, have a true preseason, um, go into a season where you're only playing once a week, where you're not having missed class time, no, no more midweek matches, um, playing on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday nights or Sunday days to, to give your fans a better experience as well. Um, and then, and then, obviously, having recovery time before you start up another season, um, and, and obviously, I think it gives the student athletes a little bit more balance, and it moves our our NCAA tournament and our um, our national championship away from college football, since they've moved to this model of these um, conference championships themselves. It's the same weekend that we have our national championship, so we just kind of get. Um, zero publicity, publicity, right. obviously. So we'd like to move it to later in May, potentially Memorial Day weekend. And, uh, and I think it would be a huge benefit, um, for, like I said, for college soccer, but certainly for our student-athletes. I hope it works out, because I think that would be great for the game, too. Uh, yeah, I think it would be awesome. Three more questions for you. Best piece of advice you've ever gotten, and who gave it to you? Um, I, I tell it to my players all the time, my best friend from high school his father awesome awesome man and um he told me one time you know don't ever feel sorry for yourself because there's always somebody worse off than you and uh and that was when i was like a junior in high school it has always stuck with me um and it, and it always will i preach it to my players all the time is 
to not feel sorry for yourself. Um, and uh, and certainly I, I, I try and live that every day, and I preach to my players all the time. I would hope that if you ask them, um, they would they would give you that same answer because that's one message I always try and send them home with all the time. Best thing a player ever told you? You know, that uh, probably that I was like a father to them and, um, and, and being a dad now and, and taking that, obviously, that responsibility very serious, it really meant a lot to me. Um, you know, that, play, that that player left here fell, feeling like he was, a, he was a better person having played for me and, and that I was like a father to him. That's awesome. Last question with Brian Cunningham. What's the one book that, you, that you've read that you think everyone else should read? Uh, from the gut, um, you know J- Jack Welch is awesome, and uh, that's one of his best. That's one of his best books, in my opinion. Awesome, Brian Cunningham, head coach of UCF men's soccer. The regular season for the Knights uh, starts on actually this coming Friday, August twenty sixth. They are out in Phoenix, Arizona, playing Grand Canyon. The home opener, September fourteenth. That's a Wednesday night against Florida Gulf Coast. Uh, and then they play again three days later at the UCF Soccer and Track Complex against the uh, Jacksonville Dolphins on September uh, the 17th. The conference schedule gets underway with USF on September 24th. Coach, thanks for spending time with us here on the Black and Gold Banner at Podcast. Good luck on the road trip out west, and uh, we'll see you when you get back, okay? Yeah, thanks so much, Jeff. Go night. All right, Eric Lopez joins me now. What's up, dude? It's uh, good to talk to you again, Jeffrey. I mean... I'm loving it. Fall time is here. We got the, all the sports going on. Man, I I can't get up. Maybe it's because I, I got locked in on the Olympics um, yeah. for the last two weeks. But football season's a week away. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable I mean, I, how quickly that happened. I mean, there is a game this week uh, if you want to count the one in Sydney, Australia. But, yeah, the real one, the one that people are really looking forward to is a week away. And, obviously, UCF, uh, home opener, uh, certainly a lot of uh, – Interesting questions finally get maybe some answers when yep. uh, football gets on the field against South Carolina State, well, right? I mean, I feel like it's a it's one of these a lot of unknowns, right? We have a new coach, a new scheme, uh, you know, you got freshmen that 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 have been recruited by Scott Frost that we don't, you know, we think will make impact, but we don't know. We don't know how this offense is going to look. We don't know how this defense is going to look. The tempo, it's very interesting. Well, this is why coaches call the non-conference season the preseason because. There's no better test in your first game as sort of a dry run for Scott Frost and his new offense than playing an FCS school. (laughs) And South Carolina State, um, I'm going to pull up their uh, information from last year, but we we have played them before. They actually played us uh, pretty tough. This is 2008. I was there. Yeah, Yeah, it was eight years ago. I was there too. And uh, ugly uh, game. Yeah, it was ugly. It was in the rain. And Michael I we, Greco, I believe, was uh, that's and Rod right. Calabrese played some both at quarterback at that time. I believe I want to remember Roddy was the starter. Michael Greco what, was Roddy the Weaver yeah. was the starting uh-huh. running back. It was a uh, it was a uh, and it, uh, it was, Bryn it was, Harvey was there. Yeah, unfortunately, it was an omen for a really bad year. Last year, South Carolina State went seven and four, uh, but did not make the uh, playoffs. They uh, let's see who did they play? Did they play anybody worthwhile? They they beat FAMU thirty six nothing. They uh, Lost to Bethune-Cookman in Daytona and um, actually played a game in the Miak Swack Challenge here in Orlando last year and beat Arkansas Pine Bluff 35-7 in, uh, you know, throughout the records when those two teams get together. No doubt. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think it's it, it kind of has the um, air of like this 
science experiment that we're getting ready to perform, doesn't it? You know, is it, uh, it's, so um, what do we get, you know, what, what's it going to look like? Are they going to really throw the offense full bore? Are they only going to put a few things down on tape? You know, how's Holman going to look? Is he going to get all the snaps? Are they going to put other people in there? Um, I don't, a lot of question marks. Yeah, no, there is. And look, there's questions. I mean, and then Scott Frost said this after one of the practices and actually said it on media day. Not focused about the the season. It's not focusing on week two, week four. They're focusing on this game. Let's just—they need to get a win. He thinks it's a very important game. Yeah. It's time for Dundee to get a win. This team hasn't won. This program hasn't won a game in over a year. The last and, win was Hale Hale Burchard <laughs> at, sure. at ECU. And, that's a long time ago. That's right. Um, that's November of 2014. So correct. And I do agree with his. Synopsis. I think this is a very important game for the players because if, let's say, you know, they don't win this game. And look, they lost to Furman last year. If you don't win this game, you're 0-1, you're going to Michigan, you're probably going to lose that game. Then you host Maryland, and now you're thinking, boy, this could go, or we're, you know, are, are we ever going to win? And it's almost you know, all that positive vibe that you've been trying to build in the spring and the fall gets cracked. So, well, I mean, all you got to say is if you lose this game, you lost to a Division One FCS team at home, and that's bad again, enough, you know? For the second year in a row. So, so it is... I think from a psychological standpoint for the players, it's important just to get a win. And I don't even think it has to be an impressive win. Just get a win, and so you know what that feels like. And I think you can move forward from that. So, uh, you know, I know we don't, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of these MCS games personally. But, uh, you know, they do need to get a win here yeah. if they want to, you know, if they want to have positive things happen this season. Well, now's the time. Let's talk about the other fall sports. All right, so we got our yeah. fall, our fall uh, sports previews done. We just listened to uh, – Brian Cunningham of men's soccer. We had Tiffany Roberts of Haydack of women's soccer. We had Todd Dagenet from volleyball on. Um, let me ask you, of those three programs, both soccers and volleyball, uh, put them in order of likelihood to win the conference championship this year from most likely to least likely. That is tough. Let, I, I will, you know, I'm going to start, I, I'm going to go with volleyball, believe it or not. It might hmm. surprise some people on this as the most likely to win and the reason is and you know this Vic but uh, you know this better than anybody is the American Conference volleyball is very tight there's not a clear-cut team I mean some teams end up winning I know Tulsa had a great year but I mean I remember UCF was within a few points of knocking them off for example and yep. a game or two does not it, it, you know separates these teams it's a pretty wide open league last year UCF had a lot of injuries that you can speak of and really hurt them. Two years ago, they won the regular season title. And I look at this year, I like Cincinnati. Uh, Jordan Thompson, who I got to see up close in person, you did too, uh, might be the best player in the league. I know that Todd is very high on USF and a lot of the players they've got bringing in. But, I, I mean, I would go with them as the likelihood, slightly over women's soccer. I think a lot of people have just assumed they'd go with women's soccer, you know, Young team, you had Coach Sahadek on, and boy, rough. I mean, you talk about a tough schedule. Woo! Oh yeah, uh, and, and you know and they, it didn't get, it didn't go all their way either because they lost both the games up in uh, up at sure. Duke and Carolina, sure. which which you can't you can't look at that and say, oh well, that's that's a major setback. I mean, they're playing number three and number nine ranked teams in the sure. country, so yeah, and the, you know the North Carolina game was scoreless about halfway. They had a shot to take the lead against Carolina, didn't it didn't convert. And uh, they gave up a goal in the second half. And once you give, you fall behind, you you now become more aggressive, which 
leaves you more the set to get hit on the counter. And I think that's kind of what happened there. So, yeah, I wouldn't read too much. You know, that was two tough games. I think Coach Sahadex, usually the track record with her and UCF is, they, you know, they kind of maybe uh, kind of feel each other out first and it gets stronger as the year goes. The thing is, the league is tough. Connecticut is very good. Connecticut is the team that UCF is going to have to get through for the American Conference. Connecticut has beaten them the last couple years. And then you've got USF's very good. So, uh, you know, that's the challenge. And I believe UCF goes to Connecticut uh, this mm-hmm. year. So uh, that's a challenge for, for Coach Sahadek. And then men's soccer, you know, Brian Cunningham is fascinating to me, uh, Jeff, because look, I mean, and you guys talked about all the MLS talent that has been produced yeah. uh, from that program. With high, even locally here, currently people can see it on a nightly basis, on a weekly basis, with Orlando City with Haji Berry who's been mm-hmm. a factor for them, and, and and the list goes on as you guys did, talked about. But for whatever the reason, and you guys go into it, the last couple years they haven't been able to put it together as a team uh, for a variety of reasons. Some injuries have played in that, and some close losses, and can they get over the hump? Uh, for 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 Brian Cunningham will be very interesting to see if they can pull that off. Uh, you know, last year they lost to Tulsa in the quarterfinals, but it was a close match. So that that's kind of how I would rank it. I would go with volleyball. I mean, this and I'll defer to you. I mean, with Todd, I mean, you had some injuries. You got Kia Bright, their best player. Really, they were without with their best player last year, the right. whole year. Now she's back, and yeah. then they got you know, and so I and there's and I think they will learn from a lot of close losses last year. Yeah, the Kia Bright thing, I think, is it, based on my conversation with Todd. I, it, my two big takeaways of it were. Thank God Kiev writes back. And even with all the injuries that UCF had last year, because all those young players got all those reps, the developmental time has shrunk because they got all the reps that they have. And so you have a lot of sophomores and, and juniors that got plenty of playing time last year that are going to be counted on significantly. That last year, you know, like Jordan Pingle, who uh, was yeah. the libero last year, you know, as a freshman – and Todd talked about this. When you're a freshman libero in college volleyball, it is drinking out of a fire hose. And um, I expect her to be significantly improved. Then the other thing is, you know, like Todd mentioned, Kia Bright, I mean, we always talk about how, you know, great her vertical leap is. You know, she could, he told me one time that she could dunk a basketball standing, standing straight up. She didn't have to get a running leap. She does have that kind of a vertical leap. And, um, as spectacular as she is to watch on offense, you know, I hope she's just as spectacular on the knee. She was a really good defensive player for UCF too. And, um, and, and I think that's what they missed was her kind of two way transition ability. And, uh, assuming she's healthy and it's, and, and he did say, you know, it takes you a good 18 months to recover fully from an injury like that. If you've got her back at 85, 90%, that's still a pretty good player to have on your roster. So, I, I think that even though UCF was picked fourth in the league, um, you're right. You could have some close matches with those teams that are right around you, and you never know. Flip of the coin, a swing goes your way here or there, a deflection here or there, and all of a sudden you're back at the top of the conference. This feel, I told them it feels to me a lot like uh, 2013, which was the year before the year when they finished in uh, second sure. and, uh, and were just a fingernail away from – from the conference regular season. And the other thing is, too, no tournament in the American in volleyball. So uh, if you can steal a few matches on the road, you don't have to worry about going out to Cincinnati or Memphis or, U- or you know, UConn or wherever to play a tournament to go to the NCAAs because 
they have no tournament. So um, that actually okay plays to that? you. Do you do what's been your opinion? Because I've talked to Todd about that in the past, and uh, you know he's fine with it. Uh, I know there's other coaches that like the conference tournament because uh, I've wondered at times, you know, does the conference tournament help a team that gets hot? But the negative is obviously if you win the regular season, you could get knocked off. Uh, I mean, do you have a preference on that? You know, I as a guy who remember when we were in college, we used to do these tournaments all the time. Sure, and uh, so as. A member of the media and as a broadcaster, I love the tournaments. You know, because I, I just think they're fun. It's fun to to get everybody together, and you get, you know, four, you know, on the first day you get four matches, and the second day you get two. It's you know, I, I, I love conference tournaments. I love college basketball conference tournaments for that reason. Um, but Todd, when I asked him about it, you know, this is many moons ago, um, he made a good point that was a convincing point to me, where he said, you know. The position that the American is in college volleyball, you know, it's it's dominated by the Pac-12, the Big 12, and the Big 10, right? And, you know, to a lesser extent, the SEC. But if you think there's separation between the power conferences and the group of five, if you will, conferences in football, you should check out volleyball because there's some major separation happening there. And so his point was, if you've got, you know, say, two, as you usually would, two or three teams from the American that are... Uh, NCAA tournament worthy, it's better for your overall resume to have, say, all three of them coming off of two victories in the last weekend of the season than have uh, two of the three coming off of losses, or maybe even all three if if someone gets hot at the right time in a tournament. And so it makes it, uh, it, it makes the committee think a little bit harder about, um, hey, should we leave this team out or not? Because... Um, there's, they don't have as much evidence running against them. So um, in the case of the American, I think it's good that they don't have a conference tournament. If we were in, if UCF were in the Big 12 or the SEC, I think maybe it would be a little bit different because they could fight their way into the tournament by winning and knocking off a couple of giants. But as it is, I think it's actually good for volleyball considering where the American is and where UCF is. Yeah, I totally understand that. I like what soccer has done, which is they do. I mean, they do have a conference tournament, but they will actually reward the team that wins the regular season. The team that wins the regular season will host it. Right. And I I like that a lot. And, you know, that's why logistically that can get a little tough, though, you know, because then all of a sudden, you know, you may not know until the week before if you're hosting. Sure. But I mean, that's, you know, it's I I think I'd like rewarding the regular season champion. And, And I and I think that that's. I like that route, and certainly if you're UCF fan, that's what you know. If you're Brian Cunningham, you're and your coach Sahadek, right? That's one of the messages to the players: Hey, you win the regular season title, the conference tournament's coming in your house, and uh, I like that. And I think that's always been a, a factor, especially on the women's side. Uh, home field does make a difference, so I, I'm all for that. But I, you know, it's going to be interesting. I think it's going to be a fun year. I agree with you. The volleyball is going to be to me. Is going to be. I mean, that could come down to the last week of the season too. Would that would that shock you if that came down? I don't think it would shock a lot of people if that no. came down to the last week and we went through all these scenarios of uh, from one through five. Yeah, uh, it wouldn't I mean, surprise me at all. I mean, SMU was the clear cut team last year, but they know they lost some personnel from last year's team. You got Temple, a lot of people like Cincinnati. I told you about. I think they got the best player in the turn in the in the conference. Uh, UCF's got a lot of returners, and I know he likes USF. So uh, that's five teams right there that that could be the difference. And 
he's built up that schedule too, Jeff. I would argue that that might be one of the best home schedules in UCF volleyball history with Florida State coming in. You also have LSU coming in in September. That's two power five schools coming into your building, and he's going on the road for some trick, tough games. Yeah, that, that's what I'm looking forward to also is how is how this schedule shapes up and, and how they look in those matches in particular. And don't forget, they play FSU early this uh, 1 p.m. this Saturday, and then they got to come back and play Stetson. Stetson's no slouch either the last couple years out of the A-Sun. So that's something to keep in mind with volleyball coming around the corner. And don't forget that home tournament starting this Friday uh, at the venue. Um, and, of course, Four. two matches Friday, two matches on Saturday. Uh, let's talk a little news. We've got a couple stories to touch upon before we go. Sure. Um, the George O'Leary statue story. Huh. So um, this broke in the Orlando Sentinel that – in 2017, sometime in 2017, UCF is going to um, erect a statue uh, of George O'Leary outside Bright House Network Stadium. We got no idea what it's going to look like. We have no idea where they're going to put it. We have no idea what uh, what George is going to look like or any of that kind of stuff. What when exactly it's going to happen? So everyone's kind of left to think. Okay, well, this is going to happen. Um, two questions for you. Should George O'Leary be memorialized in, in in a statue? And if so, is it a little too soon? Well, I, I uh, the, the statue thing is a very delicate situation when you deal with college athletics in general. You know, should 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 college athletics and universities have put statues up for coaches? in their univer- respective universities, and if so, what's the criteria? I mean, everybody's different. For example, <laughs> Florida has three statues. I've been to Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. You have Steve Spurrier. It's all the Heisman and he, winners. And it's all the Heisman Trophy winners. Yep. So makes sense. FAU has one of Howard Schnellenberger, who basically literally built the program from scratch. Mm-hmm. Literally. Like, they didn't have no football until Howard Schnellenberger got there. And they uh, actually had a lot of success, won bowl games. They got to the 1AA semifinals uh, with FAU. So uh, they gave them a statue. Bobby Bowden obviously has a statue. Those are, you know, and the, uh, Alabama, which I've been to, <laughs> has statues of every coach they've had that have won the national title. So, like, Nick Saban is, already has a statue. <laughs> All right? So uh, it's, it's always. How would you like to is- come to work every day and walk past a statue of yourself? That's got to be great. <laughs> Yeah, I, I stood with it, took a photo. It was very bizarre, but uh, so, but there's some people that are offended by that. There's some people that think that they should not. You should not give coaches and play, you know statues at universities in particular. Uh, so some people, are, but that put that aside. Um, I feel like if you're giving a statue to somebody in the university, usually it has to be pretty much unanimous that everybody pretty much is celebrating that person correct would you not say like if you're giving a statue to someone that's probably like 99 percent of the population is pretty excited like if you go to florida i don't think anybody's going to florida and saying why do we have a tim tebow you know statue i think everybody in florida like gainesville loves tim tebow or steve spurrier or danny werfel so that that's you know bobby bowden in florida say nobody's going to have a question i think the issue here jeff fairly or not and, and it is what it is there's a lot of detractors of George O'Leary in, within the fan base and out of the fan base, obviously. Uh, I'm not saying it's the majority, but I do think there's a percentage of people that are not George O'Leary people. You and I have mutual friends that went to that school that refuses to step on campus and go to a football pro, uh, game uh, over the last handful of years because of George. And I can tell you that I've talked to that person 
And one of them is a, a they're not thrilled about the statue. Uh, so, again, I'm not saying that they're right for feeling that way, but they do feel that way. So I just think that you're it, it, I think you should celebrate George O'Leary. I just don't I wouldn't do it with a statue. I would have done it with maybe naming the field. I think a more appropriate thing, Jeff, would have been to name some of the, you know, like the practice, the indoor facilities. And because George O'Leary's biggest impact was really telling UCF, hey, get your act together. We need some facilities here if you want to be a serious football program. Uh, And I think that's his biggest impact of anything else. And so I think there was other ways to do it. Uh, I don't know if a statue is the way to do it. I just think a statue is a bit much because then. Uh, who's to say, why don't we just build a statue for, like, for example, Michelle Akers, who's accomplished so much for at UCF Women's Soccer and beyond and stuff like that. So, you know, th- you, you just get into a slippery slope. And I do agree with uh, the second part of your question. I think it is a little too soon. Um, you know, I, I, I don't what you know, I would wait a, a year or two uh, now. And maybe they are now. There hasn't been any press release. UCF has not acknowledged this. This is all based on reports. Uh and, and this is all based on boosters that are spending the money on this, by the way. So uh, I know some people were like through I had to correct some people. They thought, well, is this coming out of the student fee or no, 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 no. The, the schools, this is coming out of the boosters and a couple of the loyal O'Leary UCF football boosters, I think, have chipped in on this stuff. So, uh, yeah, I would have waited a couple of years, a year or two, um, you know, because for all the success that he has had. As again, another person that I know that went to your school at UCF pointed out, yep, you've got a great BCS win in the Fiesta Bowl. You also have two uh, seasons where you went winless, and and that's a little harsh. I don't agree with that, but that's some that's th- those feelings are out there, Jeff, and that can't be ignored. Great column. There's a great uh, interesting column from Dennis Dodd, CBS Sports, came out <laughs> yesterday. Uh, did you yeah. see this? Yeah. Um, I'm just going to read the first uh, couple paragraphs here. UCF can go to hell. Those are not my words, but the words of Tampa attorney Steve Yared moments after he found out the University of Central Florida is building a statue of former football coach George O'Leary on campus. Quote, they're going to erect a statue for George O'Leary, Yared said incredulous. It makes me, if not physically nauseous, but emotionally nauseous. Um, it should be noted that Florida, that this guy Steve Yared was um, the lawyer for um, Eric Plancher. And as someone who worked a few steps under George O'Leary in the video department for two years and up close and personal um, and saw how that how the sausage was made on the inside. Do I like George O'Leary? No. Okay, I think that I'm on the record as saying that I've never I I was never a fan of the guy um, and his way of doing things. Now, on balance, do I think that you, he left UCF football in a much better place than he found it? There's no question about that. There's absolutely no question. When you go from a team that was a couple years after being a Division A independent that had no means of getting to a bowl game to within a decade, winless season and all, to win the Fiesta Bowl on national television by beating the Big 12 champion, one of the most explosive offenses in college football history, is miraculous. UCF is the youngest school to ever win a major bowl game. 
in terms of the age of the school. It's easy for us to forget how recently it was that UCF was essentially a commuter school, a step above a community college. And that happened to have a football team that, oh, yeah, they had Dante Culpepper, but was Central Florida. People thought, oh, where is that, Tampa? And he really did, and I know this this is kind of a um, cliche that pops up all the time, but George O'Leary really did put UCF football on the map. And as much as I disliked how he operated as much as I was uh, not a fan of his per- of his way of personally interacting with people who were below him um, I have to you know if if I walked up to him in there I'd have to begrudgingly shake his hand and say coach thanks for putting my alma mater on the on the football map and for 10 amazing years um, you got to take the good with the bad um, I and I and that's not to say that I don't um, sympathize with the people who say, well, look at what happened with the Plancher case. Look at what happened with the two winless seasons. Look at what happened with how the how it all ended and how it ended so quickly and so and in such an ugly fashion. I get that. I get all of that. Um, but on balance, if you, you – what would be UCF's wins above replacement, you know? I don't know. I, I don't know if it could be if it would be that much higher. You know, he stayed for ten years at this school, and uh, at a time when a lot of guys probably would have picked up at UCF, and maybe you know three, you know, two three years after that, uh, maybe after they won that first uh, they they won that first conference championship, maybe would have jumped ship to another program if it was some other coach. But he stuck around, and uh, and you know, I got it begrudgingly. Tip my cap to him. So I'm okay with the statue. I'm fine with it. Wow. Going with the statue. Begrudgingly, I think, you know, as as a as an alumnus, you got to do it. You know? I don't have to have a beer with him. I just got to, you know, shake his hand and say, thanks, coach. That's all I got to do. What if Gene McDowell? That's the one I was thinking about. Had won a national title in one double A. Oh, or definitely. Even, no question. Know, uh, uh, or, or you know, a guy, or, or maybe how about a you know, Coach Jonas found the program at UCF. I mean, that's the that's Don the Jonas. Slope. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no. Don Jonas. Um, I mean, he founded the program. Let's UCF made a run, I think, to the semifinals of Division One A one year. I think, um, or a Division One of the Division One Double A playoffs. G. McDowell, G. McDowell obviously helped you know put UCF in the transition yeah. speaking from of, speaking of guys who by the way their tenure did not exactly end in illustrious fashion it was Gene sure. McDowell yeah. okay yeah. but um sure. uh but it, based on what you're saying oh I think that Gene McDowell would have if he had won a division one double a national championship I think we would already have a statue of Gene McDowell up there they would have named the okay. stadium after him <laughs> no I mean it's just interesting how a couple results because then here's my second part to this what if UCF doesn't come back? Because, you know, you're the master of the what if. You love the what if game, all right? Yeah, so I this is why I'm, I'm kind of turning this on you, actually. <laughs> um, what if we go back to 2013 and UCF, remember, we were, we, you and I sat together with a couple of friends at an uh, establishment and watched the UCF Louisville game. And Louisville jumped out to that big league. Louisville was the heavy favorite. Teddy Bridgewater, Charlie Strong was the head yeah, coach. I almost, I almost walked out of the bar. 
Yeah, and they're up twenty. <laughs> a lot of people were bailing. It was twenty-eight to seven, I think, at one point. The game turned around. Remember, Louisville was driving and they fumbled the ball into the goalpost. UCF made the great run, won the game, uh, and ended up winning the game. But what if they didn't win that game? Uh, if they would have lost that game, they don't win the conference. Louisville wins the conference, and right. Louisville goes on to the BCS, not UCF. Well, that that whole that whole season is different, but you know. It, but but let's just say let's just go. If they lose that game, UCF. Maybe, let's say UCF then goes ten and two that year. Still has a great year. Finishes top twenty. Wins a bowl game, but they don't win the BCS. Or they do win the conference, but loses to Baylor. After all, they were a heavy underdog. Does if we ha- if I change one or two of those results, are we still building a statue for George O'Leary? Boy, that's a good one. I I I think that if the way that season unfolded, where just after the South Carolina game, UCF just kept hitting royal flushes. Um, and the the magic of that season, um, boy, that's that's hard for me to say. I, I would think that you know if we did not get to the BCS bowl game, we wouldn't be talking about a statue, uh, right. or maybe the negative reaction to it being floated out there would have been such that. Um, that it, it would have gotten swept under the rug, but but we did win the game. We did win the Louisville game. Oh we yeah, did no, go no eleven question. and one. I mean, we did but, beat but it, Baylor. It is interesting. You know, and, My point is, it's like one or two games basically is the difference here. Yeah. Like for example, like Bobby Bowden. If I take Bobby Bowden's two national title games, uh, national titles away, I still think he gets a statue at Florida State because of the how he built the Florida State program, because of the top five finishes from '87 to '02, all the pro players he's developed. I still think he gets a statue, even without the two. In other words, he has a lengthy work of body uh, a body of work that kind of builds that case. Whereas with George, I just wonder. Uh, is that comeback against Louisville, a win against Baylor, is that really what the difference is in this conversation between a statue and maybe being, uh, maybe having a driveway on the way to the stadium <laughs> being named after you? You um, know, it's you know, it, it, I, obviously it depends on who you ask. Now, the one thing I will say about O'Leary is that th- those uh, alumni who are putting up the money to to sure. get this done, they loved George. Loved, yeah. loved, loved him. I mean, like, it, like, worshipped the ground he walked on, and um, uh, because he was an old time football guy, and those guys are all old time football guys, you know. Um, and this brings me back to Scott Frost because I think that the culture shock that we're going to be, be experiencing here at UCF football for the next few years under Scott Frost is going to be one of the most um, interesting and interesting to observe transitions in all of college football. Because I've said this before, George O'Leary was the last 20th century football coach. Scott Frost is all 21st century. Oregon offense, crazy uniforms, um, all kinds of stuff. You know, I mean, there's Somebody put up, uh, put up an old video of when uh, there was a practice last year where Coach O'Leary was blasting um, Chubby Checkers the twist, and the players were working out and doing like the twist. And now here's here comes Scott Frost playing top forty stuff, and it's great. Um, so uh, it, it's, I mean, I give them credit for their loyalty. I mean, I think that sometimes they tended to overlook a lot of things. Um, but you know, either way, I I think that the negative reaction to it is always, you know, we're the the honeymoon period is is. 
you know, st- we're still in it with Scott Frost right now. I, I think that if they had announced this, maybe... Well, they haven't announced that. Let's be clear. UCF well, has yeah, not that's announced true. That's reports. fair point. Let's fair be point. clair. This was, uh, Shannon Owens Green reported this at yeah. the Sentinel on Brandon Elwood. But if it had come out, if it had come out a year or two from now, I think there would be less negative reaction to it. Than, Maybe. Yeah, than what yeah I seeing. think so. Yeah, I think so. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I think an interesting comparison was Bobby Bowden uh, at the end. It didn't end well. He got pushed out yeah. for Jimbo Fisher. Bobby Bowden didn't return to go to, to come to a game until 2013. And there was three or four years that passed on. It wasn't that he was not that there was any animosity towards Bobby Bowden in the program, but, you know, that. It, like you said, it takes some time. And so when Bobby was uh, – Brian obviously got a huge ovation. The program was doing very well. Uh, and I agree with you. I think if you wait a year or two, the program's in better shape. You're not you know, you're not still thinking about the winless season. Time heals, and, and, and I think that would have been the better route to go with. But, you know, on the other hand, it is fitting that they're trying to – you know, they're going to – it looks like they possibly the reports of statues being built and there's you know people that are negative against and there's people that are positive because in a lot of ways that's the Georgia Leary era right I mean that's it, it, the one the thing I've always said is there's people that don't like him and there's people that like him but one thing he did is he made you have an opinion on UCF whereas before him nobody had an opinion on UCF last thing we want to talk about got to give a shout out to Shelby Turner Eric go. NPF champion Shelby Turnier in a rookie season, Jeff, in the NPF, the professional National Pro Fast Pitch, it's the uh, pros league in softball for softball players with the Chicago Bandits, goes out there and helps the Bandits go back-to-back in in NPF titles in Tuscaloosa, defeating their big rivals, the USSA Pride. Bandits Pride, for those that don't know, it's kind of like the Yankees and the Red Sox of softball. Shelby was lights out in the NPF Championship Series. She beat Monica Abbott, first of all, the scrapyard dogs, to get to the championship game. Monica Abbott's the best pitcher in the world. To put that in, in perspective, she wins the game 3-2-1 to two, uh, two to one in a game where she gets out of a bases-loaded jam to end the game in the seventh inning. Uh, and then, you know, they play the pride in a best-of-three. They lose the first game. They come back to win game two, 11-5, in a game that Shelby comes in relief to pick up the save, and then she closes the game out in Game 3 to win the championship. She gets the last out, and she joins fellow alum Stephanie Best, UCF Softball Hall of Famer, who won an MPF championship with Monica Abbott in 2007 with the Washington Glory, and then Allison Keim, who will be probably be a future Hall of Famer, 2009 with the Rockford Thunder and her teammate Kat Osterman. They won the MPF championship. Here's a little bit of a eerie similarities here. Allison Kime played for the general manager by the name of Aaron Moore of the Rockford Thunder. She closed out game three of the semifinals to send Rockford to the championship round where they lost the first game to the USSA Pride, ended up winning the last two games to win the title. Fast forward seven years, Shelby Turnier as a rookie with the general manager of the Chicago Bandits, Aaron Moore. Closes game three out against Monica Abbott and the Scrapyard Dogs to take her team to the championship round. They lose the first game against the Pride, and then they come back and win the next two games to win the Coles Cup and are champions. How about that? I'm glad you had all that down because that was a lot. (laughs) I'm I'm happy for – I'm so happy for Shelby because – Amazing. How quick is that turnaround, man? She comes in and – yeah. 
uh, gosh, I mean, to win a, a win a pro championship, literally uh, weeks essentially after finishing your career uh, as a college pitcher, um, you know, championships are forever. I know a lot, you know not a lot of people pay that much attention to NPF. I'm hoping that it does get a little bit more play as we. Uh, you know, we're coming off the 2016 Olympics where um, just before it was announced that softball is going to be back on the Olympic program for Tokyo 2020. I hope that uh, NPF does pick up a little bit here because, uh, you know, there's some amazing players in this league and we know quite a few of them. Now, let me ask you this. Yeah. Shelby Turnier, Team USA yep. 2020. Wow. I mean, why not, right? I mean, certainly it's a long ways away. I know she's going to keep playing. I could tell you that in talking to her when the you know the bandits played over at Disney here about in July. She's definitely going to play more. Twenty uh, twenty, why not, right? I mean, I think she's proven now. She's a household name now in softball after what happened in Tuscaloosa, winning the MPF championship, out pitching a legend like Monica Abbott. So you never know; it could be in the conversation. And that'll be fun. Real quick, too. How about this career that she's had? Even if she's not in the Olympics, two state championships here in Florida, where she pitched it uh, down in South Florida. There were the Palm Beach Gardens. Two state championships. She, she comes to UCF, wins, help, helps win two regular season championships, which was the first two regular season conference titles in the history of the school. She wins. She pitches a one hitter to win the conference tournament championship in 2015 at home against Tulsa, a game you were at, mm-hmm. where she throws a one hitter in front of a national television audience of ESPN two. She becomes the first ever first All American for UCF softball. Was a first team All American, a pitcher of the year. She leaves as the winningest pitcher in the history of the school, and she leads them to three NCAA tournament appearances. She finishes her career in late May. This year, as you mentioned, in Gainesville, in the regional finals, she pitched in, she, in three regional finals. They lose to Florida. Her career comes to an end. A week later, she signs with the Chicago Bandits as she was the highest draft pick in school history, 11th overall, has a rookie year, and helps this franchise after Monica Abbott, who used to pitch for Chicago, left them for a million-dollar contract with the Scrapyard Dogs and helps Chicago repeat and beat Monica Abbott in the process. It should That's be noted that it should be noted that yes, that team, that franchise is called the Scrapyard Dogs. They're based in Conroe, Texas, which is north of Houston, and the USSA yes. Pride is based in Kissimmee. So, um, so, but I want I wanted to mention that because you know NPF. I think what eight? I think they have eight teams. Six teams. Six teams. Or six, six teams. teams right okay, now. six teams in the uh, league. The Dallas Charge are in the league. Uh, Kaylee Novak, another former UCF softball player, plays for them. Right. Uh, as well, also, by the way, Rene Lourdes Gillespie, by the way, won an MPF title as part of an assistant in 2010 with the Pride. I forgot. Yeah. I, I did not want to exclude her in the championship uh, roll call yeah. there. But, Akron, uh, Pennsylvania, Dallas, Chicago, uh, yep. Houston, and basically Orlando. So, um, so again, congrats to Shelby on, uh, on winning a championship. Hopefully that's the first of many and maybe Team USA in the future. Who knows? Um, all right, so we're going to have uh, – College football starts this Friday with one game. That's the Hawaii-California game out in Sydney, Australia. And then uh, the week after that, man, it's go time. we got a bunch of games on Thursday night. UCF plays on Saturday against South Carolina State. And uh, we're hitting it full bore. Don't forget, UCF volleyball is going to be starting this coming weekend as well with two matches on Friday and two matches on Saturday. The two matches on Saturday are big. 1 p.m. against Florida State. Uh, and 7 p.m. against Stetson. If you can spare the time, come on out to the venue because that's going to be a big match 
uh, two big matches in the first four for Todd Dagenet's squad. So, Eric Lopez, thanks once again. I'll be talking to you soon, brother. Have fun, Jeff. Uh, have fun at the venue. I know you'll be out there working, and uh, have fun, night fans. All right, brother. Well, where can we reach you again? Eric Lopez Elo on Twitter. Follow me there for what all my uh, what's going on with me, and uh, certainly I produce Talking Only on a week uh, daily basis, three to seven on Sports Talk 1080, the Team Orlando. And hit me up at Jeff underscore Sharon. You can follow us at UCF underscore Banneret on Twitter. You can look us up on Facebook. Search Black and Gold Banneret there. Don't forget to subscribe to us uh, via email. You can get our latest articles right into your inbox at blackandgoldbanneret.com. And uh, last but not least, don't forget to, if you haven't yet, subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, via Stitcher as well. And also, don't forget Google Play. We're live on Google Play as well. So for Eric Lopez, my name is Jeff Sharon. This has been the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast.